did death become so important in the Christian tradition? How did the death of Jesus speak to early Christians and how does it speak to us today? How do the ways we think about death help us engage with life? And how does our care for creation challenge our approach to death? Welcome to Talking Theology, a podcast of Cranmer Hall Durham, where we explore some of life's big questions and try to join the dots between theology, church and the world. I'm your host, Philip Fleming, and in today's show, I'll be talking to Professor Douglas Davis. Douglas is both an anthropologist and a theologian, a fellow of both the Academy of Social Sciences and the British Academy, and a professor of theology and religion at Durham University. And our question today is, how do we think theologically about death. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Douglas Davis, welcome to Talking Theology. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. Douglas, tell us a little bit about yourself, your journey. What does your role in the theology department here at Durham University look like? And tell us about the journey to that point. Well, journeys are long things, and I've been at it rather a long time. I was, in fact, here in Durham as an undergraduate at St. John's College, reading anthropology. I went on from there to Oxford to do my first research in anthropology. I came back to Durham to read theology at Durham, because then, as now, it was the best place to study theology in the country. And by routes that I simply wasn't expecting, because I was expecting simply to become a parish priest, I found myself as a lecturer at Nottingham University, developed the study of religion from a social science perspective within a department that had been very traditional, Bible, church history, that sort of thing. And I was there for 20 odd years. And then I came back to Durham 20 odd years ago. And I've been in the Department of Theology and Religion, as now we are called, for that period of time, having developed within it the approach to the study of religion from anthropology and sociology, which is now quite a significant part of the department here. I've spent a great deal of my life from my first research studying Mormonism. So I guess I'm quite well known many places for studying Mormonism in a rather distinctive way as an outsider, but not playing the outsider-insider card, but trying to be academically, intellectually, humanly alert to what other people really believe about life and destiny. So I've spent a long time doing that. And then, in a strange kind of way... I found myself studying death ritual. Tell us about that. You mentioned the intersection that you've brought in your academic work between sociology, anthropology and theology. What was it that first sparked your interest in looking at a theology of death through a social lens? Well, it was accidental. And I think I'm very interested in the role of accident in life. It happened because I had a friend who had been a classicist, then became a Russian linguist, and then a sociologist, a remarkable man, Chris Binns, who had been studying in the USSR, as the Soviet Union then was, the role of ritual, because with the Russian Revolution, with the USSR, the Soviet Revolution, they produced rituals for every aspect of life. A ritual for joining school. You became a member of the working classes by ritual. Not like in Britain, you're born into it, sort of. You became a member of it. There were rituals for every part of life. I was talking to Chris about this shortly after he came back, and I'd been working so much on Mormonism, I thought I'd do something else. I thought, secular ritual. And first of all, I thought about register offices. I thought about that for a bit. I thought it was so boring, I wouldn't do that. But then I thought, what is there in Britain where you might be able to look at secular ritual? The crematorium. When I did the classical literature search, way back in the 1880s now, (laughs) there was no literature on it. 
Nobody was studying the thing. Well, to an academic, to have an area that nobody's working on, that's wonderful, isn't it? Gold dust, isn't it? Gold dust. So that's how I got into looking at cremation, crematoria, then realising, of course, these were mixed places. They were used by the churches. Back in the 1880, in the 1980s, of course, the churches were playing the major role in conducting the, the ceremonies, the ritual there. But also there were places where non-religious ceremonies could take place. Now, since then, we've seen a transformation there, so that now the majority of rites taking place in crematoria, most crems anyway, will be by non-religious celebrants, humanist, secular celebrants of various sorts. So I got into studying ritual. So as an anthropologist, the issue of ritual was important. The place where it was happening was important. And then that took me... Because at that point, there were people in Britain, in the funeral trades, and in the churches, actually, who were really interested in thinking about these things, as it were, for the first time. Because by the time you got there, from the middle 1960s, the majority of deaths in Britain were now being cremated. Nobody was talking about it. It is amazing that no sociologist, historian, theologian had paid attention to a major transformation in their own society. Well, this was dawning on me, wasn't it? So cut a long story short, we then did big projects on religious attitudes to Britain, focused on whether you could reuse old graves, because this was becoming a big issue in some of the London cemeteries. So we, we interviewed 1,600 people in their own homes, not by phone or on the street corners, on attitudes to reusing graves, to beliefs, afterlife beliefs, all that stuff. That was a major moment. We published that back in 1995, I think. And then that led on later on, we did major work on woodland burial, ecological green burial. All that was anthropological, sociological. But inevitably, I found myself discussing these things with clergy within churches and produced a little book. There was an interesting Anglican bishop called Colin Buchanan, who was around at the time. and big Bishop of Woolwich, wasn't he? Bishop of Woolwich who was running the Grove Booklet series. He was involved with it down in Nottingham. And in a conversation one day, we're back to accident again, Colin said something like, you know, why don't you write this up? So I produced a little book called Cremation Today and Tomorrow. And this was a result of surveys we've been conducting interspersed with some theological ideas. This was the first time, I think, that anybody in the Church of England had actually produced a liturgy for cremation as an experimental liturgy. How would you use the resources of the Bible? How would you use the resources of Christian tradition to generate a ritual, a liturgy, for this thing? Because fire is very different from earth. I'm not sure the church paid much attention to it, though one or two people in it did. And then things went on, and later on I was asked by a publisher to write on the theology of death, which is an unusual book, because it will tell people some things they wouldn't like to hear, some things they would love to hear, in fact, I began it in a strange way. It just comes back to my mind how I began that book. And it might interest some people to know whether they want to go and read it or not. It began in this way. This book is for Christians who do not believe in life after death, for those who do, and for that silent majority who do not know what to think or are too embarrassed to express their thoughts. And in a way, the book pursues those issues because I found that they were really important issues for church-going practicing Christians on the one hand and for the clergy and some of the more theoretical theologians on the other. So in a way, that's how it all came about. And we'll pick up on some of those themes as we chat. Let's go back to kind of building blocks. What are the core assumptions within the historic Christian faith, within the scriptures and the tradition, which provide the framework for thinking about death? Fundamentally, the human experience that life is flawed. It's problematic. People get sick and they die. And those who are their relatives miss them. 
So we are straight into the emotional nature of our lives and into grief. Okay, taking that back to the time of Jesus and the early disciples, to earliest Christianity, as it emerges as a sect of Judaism, you might say, it's important because the death of Jesus and the life preceding it, and the early sect's belief that he had been resurrected after it, those issues become absolutely pivotal. So that you could say death is the cornerstone of Christianity, but it's death with a very interesting personalized focus. So in that sense, it's a little bit unlike if we were looking at this in terms of, say, something like Indian-derived religious traditions at large, where death is also very important, but it's more generalized and applicable to everybody. But in that early Christian thing, it becomes very much, it's the death of Christ. And then people like St. Paul go big on this, being baptized into a death like his, we are risen into a life like his, kind of motif. But death becomes the idea to think with, and it's very important. But now, of course, now we find the interesting issue that as this death-grounded stream begins to flow, what does it carry along with it? It carries along with it ideas, for example, of human disobedience. Why is there death? Well, there's death because humanity defied God, disobeyed God. And that big theological word, the fall, comes in. And some Christian traditions then really develop this, run with it, and Death is there because of the big negative. I want to stress that because there's a sense in which all Christian tradition, where tradition means things that are handed on, that big negative, death is evil, or as Paul puts it, the sting of death is sin. Sin makes death work. That then becomes a major piece of something carried along by the tradition. So there's a sense in which when Christian liturgies begin to emerge, funeral liturgies with time, then this issue of death having been brought about by the disobedience of Adam, salvation being brought about by the obedience of the second Adam, Jesus, becomes a big feature. This raises a remarkable question for contemporary Christianity because there's a sense in which We can all live with one mind, or we can all live with two minds, or with 20 minds. We inhabit different thought worlds. And much of Christianity, dealing with death and liturgies of death, play with the big negative. So within the Catholic tradition, and in the Christian tradition in and through the medieval world, and in parts of the Catholic tradition to this day, parts of the Orthodox tradition as well, the dead who are in some kind of an afterworld can be assisted by the liturgies and the prayers of the living liturgies for the dead, prayers for the dead, and so on. So that there's that link between the living and the dead, which liturgy makes possible. The Protestant world took against that. This was not acceptable. In fact, the very first piece of work that John Calvin, as a reformer, and he was still a young man at this time, in, in his early 20s, I seem to recall, was a book on the sleep of the soul. So it was death that was preoccupying Calvin in his early days, before he gets on to writing his great institutes and all that sort of stuff. This great negativity was there. Protestants said, no, everything's in the hands of God, even to the point of it's predestined whether you're going to have eternal life or not. So in a way, death and the rituals of death, the liturgies of death, theologies of death, around the Reformation period were juggling with each other. 
The good old Church of England, as time went on, held a little bit of this and a little bit of that together, with evangelicals by and large not liking prayers for the dead, the Anglo-Catholics by and large engaging in it, and the good old guys in the middle saying things like, and this is an important point really, saying things like, well, while we're alive, we pray for those we love. Now that they're dead, we still have a feeling for them. So why shouldn't we pray for them too? So they are all the ideas in, in the basket of faith, I think. You talked about the way in which one of the things that's distinctive about a Christian approach to death is that it has this personalised focus on Christ. You know, there is, of course, within the Bible, the reality of death as part of human existence. To what extent does the life beyond death of Jesus and the way that's understood in, in the scripture and the tradition change a Christian theology of death in the way that's been carried along? It does. But it's, in a sense, Christian theologies of death. It's a plural, I think. Because, in a way, if you go back and look at some of the biblical texts, you can see St. Paul having a big problem. Okay, and this is a big debate within theology and interpretations of the Bible. Some of these earliest Christians, they think Jesus is coming again soon. He's going to come on the clouds of heaven, we'll all be caught up with him, and there'll be a new kingdom, a new form of things, the details of which were not really worked out still are not worked out. But that was what was going to happen. And then some of these early Christians realised that some of them were dying. That seems to be the case in, for example, 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians is classic for this. They're dying. So what does Paul do? Wearing his pastoral hat, as it were, he said, look, don't worry. When Christ does come, those of us who are alive will be caught up with him, and those who are dead will be resurrected and caught up with him as well. So don't worry, nobody's being left out of the party, is basically what he was saying. So that was a big issue, I think. And then, of course, time goes on. But going back to that biblical stuff, that's one aspect of it, the kind of Adventist, Christ is coming again, the new kingdom is coming, that merges into ideas of heaven, and so we end up with things like the book of Revelation and its images, where interestingly, of course, heaven is a city. It's not rural, so if you're a rural dweller, tough luck, you've got to come and live in the city to get the benefits. Well, that expresses images on that era. But then you could switch gear a bit, and you can approach a theology of death in terms of a quality of life in the here and now. So, for example, there would be those who would read the Gospel of John and those kind of images of abiding in Christ, having life in you, parts of Paul indeed, of having a life in you, which is a quality of existence that is remarkable. And people have sometimes said that eternal life is not just about what happens when we die, but is about a quality of the life in the here and now that might continue. And I, th- I think that is an important feature. Going back to the issue about the personal focus of thinking about death in relation to the person of Jesus, because it is, for now, we're just talking about Christians for the moment, that in Christian faith existence, people have a sense of God. They have a sense of spirit. They have a sense of Jesus. The different traditions will emphasize one of them. But they've got a sense of God. Now, where that is personalized, as it is in much of Christianity, when those self-same people start thinking about their own destiny, they have, as I would see it, little other option than to think about it in those personalised terms. So that when you get those rather folky traditions in Christianity, safe in the arms of Jesus, texts like that, for example, or that famous one from decades ago, the family that prays together stays together. As far as I can see, there's absolutely no biblical and very little theological warrant for ideas that the family is an eternal unit. But that quality of life, I think, is really important. The book that I did write on the theology of death really focuses on this because most theologians paid it no attention at all. 
to, in my mind, one of the greatest Christians of the 20th century was Albert Schweitzer. Both as a theologian, you might not like what he said, or some might like what he said, but he said a lot of important things, not least about the end and what Jesus thought about the end. But Schweitzer, who put his money where his mouth was and went off and helped people in Africa, he writes extensively, and in fact, where he dealt with it best was in a sermon. Because there's a sense in which sermons could, they don't very much in contemporary Christian churches, by the way, but they are the places to deal with issues such as death. He's got a brilliant sermon where he asks the question, does death have dominion over you? I'm not thinking of my compatriots, Dylan Thomas, and death has no dominion. But Schweitzer puts it long before Dylan Thomas. Does death have control of you? Does it command your being? And his response to this is that within being a Christian, within the Christian flow of things, death can have no dominion over you. And I'm putting it as can have rather than should have because it's an invitation to faith on the part of of Schweitzer. And because of the other things he wrote in theology, which we're not really talking about today, but because of his other ideas about the end of time and heaven and so forth, he's not really talking about that. He's talking about the quality of life now. And he says things like this, look at the way that Christians deal with each other when it comes to death. We say things like, oh, you'll be better soon. Oh, it'll be okay. Or you're looking good today. And he's talking, now we're back in the 1920s when he's talking about this. He says, when Christians do that, what does it produce in us? Numbness. Numbness. And because Schweitzer has such a Christian sense of how living in, through, and by Scripture, Christians come to live in, through, and by Christ. And in a way, Schweitzer is picking up that great Protestant tradition of the theology of the cross, which we've not talked about, which is obviously important. He is creating a sense of the nature of faith, the nature of existence, facing death. This is long before the Heidegger and core, more philosophical types, were engaging with these issues. So if that's an invitation that you describe about what it is to live in, through and by Christ, and therefore to experience death as not having dominion, How does that impact the way in which somebody seeking to live within the flow of Christian faith faces up to death? And I ask that question as a pastor and somebody who's preached at many funerals and some of our listeners will be in exactly the same place. By the experience of today. Sometimes when I've been talking with groups of clergy about this sort of thing, because clergy can sometimes get a bit high-handed when it comes to death in a way. It's good to think about that kind of biblical text where the apostle says, I die daily. And it's not a bad thing for clergy or other Christians for that matter to say or to be asked, have you died today? What does it mean in our existence to die today to live to Christ? Let's put it like that. And it seems to me that it's that contemporary engagement with my existence. I don't know what's going to happen after I die. And nobody else does really either. But I know what's happening today. And it's the todayness of this invitation that strikes me as important. But to make the point that todayness of faith is the basis for the tomorrow when I lose somebody I love, or the tomorrow when I have this intimation that I'm going to die as well. That's the basis of it. And that is experiential, it's emotional, it carries some ideas with it and is carried by some ideas. But it's no checklist for doing it and is that therefore an invitation not to see death as 
a kind of, we hope for a long distant one-off event, which you might aim to put off as long as possible, but rather if we live in, through and by Christ, it's an invitation to see death as part of our existence and yet one that which in Christ he has entered into and so it does not have a power. I agree with the first part of what you've said, yes. But the second part of death not having power, that's a difficult question. In a way, I've just commented on it in commenting on Schweitzer, because his approach is death should not have a power. Yeah, the dominion. The dominion. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's right, because inasmuch as we can in our daily existence live in the Christian worldview, world feel, so on and so forth, which changes in each of us as our life goes on, to live in there with death as one of the variables, one of the factors. I think that's absolutely right. I think that the putting of death in the margins, out of concern, I think that is wrong. And I think, well, not wrong. I think it's sad and unfortunate because we all come up against it sooner or later. And if somehow or other we have built into our living the fact that we are dying, that's important. This raises something we talked about earlier on. We were talking about the fall and sin and that being a big stream of Christian thought. I think that the great challenge to Christian thinking and to Christian theology just now is a challenge to theology of life and death, and it is an environmental challenge. One of the bases of Christian theology is that God is creator and sustainer, and one of the elements of Christian theology in relation to the doctrine of the Trinity, for example, which is a strange doctrine in many ways, is the Spirit as the Lord and giver of life. Now, how is that? Because in a way, you can do all theology of death in relation to Father, Son, or Holy Spirit. You can play it in each way. And so far in our conversation, we've really been playing it in terms of Father and Son, disobedience, obedience, sin, salvation. But what about the Spirit and death? And it seems to me that the time is ripe for more Christian theologians, a few are beginning to think maybe, but more should think about the Spirit and the created world, about nature. So that if, for example, we set our bark upon a different stream, a stream of the naturalness of the created order, then we've got an interesting problem. Because then what is death? Death is what happens to organic systems when they come to the end of the cycle or take on a new part of the cycle. And we are organic bodies. We are born, we live, we die, we rot. Currently in Britain, we cremate 80% of us, causing all sorts of interesting problems for the environment. Other new issues are coming on about composting the body, dissolving the body. All sorts of innovations are coming about just now. The point about them is they have an interest in the environment. So instead of just talking about death as my death, my burial, or more particularly my cremation, what am I then doing for the carbon footprint of my life? And if the world is God's world, as Christians would want to say it is, and that they have a responsibility for it to some degree, as they say they would, then the question about the naturalness of death comes in. Now, it seems to me that one of the great issues for Christian liturgy is how to build the naturalness of death. A friend of mine died last week. He was 82. Great. Full life. Tragedy? Absolutely not. Fulfillment? Yes. Which is understandable why many in our society now who are in that situation where their aged relative dies are wanting to engage in a celebration of life. Now, there's a sense that, for example, in the Book of Common Prayer or in most Christian liturgies, there is no obvious place for the celebration of life until very recently. Celebration wasn't part of it, in a way. 
it was no, but now it is. And it seems to me that Christian theology of death needs to think quite hard about the naturalness of life. How do you play the game of the fall and the sting of death is sin when you're talking about an organic, biological creature coming to the end of its days? Those are sharp questions, I think, to engage with in today's world. What are the ways in which this has landed for you over the years within your own journey of faith and the impact all this theological engagement has had for you? Very many, all to do with complexity. When you're young and if you're keen in your faith, everything is a bit simple. You've got it sorted. That phrase sorted is really good. I'm sure when I was an undergraduate here in Durham, I had it sorted. Well, then life sorted me out, not least thinking and different contexts of life experience, understanding the complexity of things. And I think in particular, from the anthropological and the sociological perspectives, which I was working more and more in, understanding how doctrines and beliefs came about and how they were handled and managed by churches. This, to me, has been really a significant issue. To what extent do you simply believe what you have been told or reject what you've believed or transform what you've believed? And it seems to me it's the transformation of received tradition that becomes the task for a thinking Christian. And I see it year in, year out, because I'm teaching a heck of a lot of really keen young Christians coming up to study theology in Durham, just the same as I'm teaching some who've come up with their own different kinds of perspective. I see it all the time. That is a great challenge when your worldview is being transformed, shattered, remade. There are big issues there about how it happens, why it happens. And for me, this has been extraordinarily interesting. In a one sense, I was really lucky having been born and bred in the Church of England, in the Church in Wales, same horse, different jockey, essentially, because in a way it's been a church that allows you to believe a great variety of things and to express your variety within liturgical, congregational, friendship circles. So the point I would make really as I look back on it all, and I hope look future on it a bit as well, is that it's one thing to be really philosophical and only to think abstractly about what's true and false. And that is, as I would see it for many people, a way of disaster. I think, however, rethinking things you've believed and been told and no longer believe, perhaps, but within a community of people, some of whom are doing it as well, is a realistic way of actually living. Because what Christians do, what all religious people do, what everybody does, actually, we all live within a story. Christian would say, we live within the good news story, a gospel story. People in other traditions would have their own way of labelling it. But to live within a story is not just to read the words on the book, but is to go to church, say your prayers, get involved, do stuff, doing stuff. So in a way, I think all those complexities of living, thinking, doing have been caught up in, in the transformations. Basic to all that has been growingly a sense of the implicit power that institutions have over us. I've had my encounters with bishops. I'm not rehearsing them now. Some very good and some not so good. But really always concerning power, either power to bless or power not quite to curse, because Anglicans are not very good at cursing, but expressing unease. 
But it's living in that sort of community that I think allows you to begin to see what's going on with power in relation to the great truths. Douglas Davis, thank you very much indeed for appearing on Talking Theology. Pleasure. You have been listening to Talking Theology, a podcast from Cranmahal, Durham. Cranmahal is a theological college within St John's College in the University of Durham, training people for ministry in the Church of England and other denominations. Find out more about us at cranmahal.com.